So I am a lover of words. I, I think if you knew me a little bit, you would know that. I love a good turn of phrase. I, I enjoy uh, reading and, and all the stuff associated with that. And I'm particularly fascinated when there's something unique or different about a writer. And in, in the passage we're going to look at today, there are 11 verses, and those 11 verses are one continuous sentence. 278 words strung together as one sentence. So I was, I was wondering what the world's record was for the longest sentence in literature. And so I went looking. There are actually some that are over uh, 2,000 words. Um, William Faulkner, Faulkner uh, Absalom, Absalom, maybe some of you read that somewhere along the way. They're over uh, almost 1,300 words in one sentence. Um, and Moby Dick. There's a passage in there with almost 500 words in one sentence. That's a lot of words. Uh, stuff that, you know, Les Miserables, 136 words in a single sentence. These are long sentences. These are, these are you know, turn of phrases, uh, starting with uh, some subject and some verb, and then lots of qualifying phrases and clauses. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, Ephesians, as a book, we, we introduced it last week, is not like many of the other New Testament books where Paul was responding to something that was going on. Maybe something good. Uh, in the case of the book of Philippians, it was a, a thank you letter for all the, the gifts that they were gathering on his behalf to give to the church in Jerusalem. Or maybe something not so good when he was responding to the church in Corinth with their sexual immorality and a whole host of other things going on. Maybe it was a personal letter, as in you know, the two letters to Timothy and the letter to time at time. Titus, and then the letter to Philemon. But in the, in the, in the case of, of Ephesians, it is a letter that is very focused on highlighting or underscoring, underscoring or putting some, some real attention on the great and grand truths uh, ab- about God. It is, it, is a, it is a marvelous treatise, if you will, very profound theological truths. Not hard to understand, not difficult, not Dr. Drydust, but nonetheless grand. Not, not so practical until he gets to the latter part of the, of the book, but, but very much wanting to make sure that the riches of God's divine mysteries uh, are, are unfolded for us. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's going to stress our roots, our theological roots. And, and what, what, are we, what are we rooted in? What can we lean on? What is our foundation? What are the truths about God that we ought to know and be able to, to share? There are certain things that you as a mother or a grandmother or even a friend should be able to impart to others, to your children. What are the things that they ought to know about God? Now, um, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are going to just, just take a highlighter and make sure we don't miss them. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says, in light of those truths, in light of those things that we ought to know, in light of those things that ought to make a difference in our lives, how do, how do we walk it out? How do we live it out? So the work of God is in the first three chapters, and then the walk of the Christian is in the last. Now, I made a mistake last week, and I know better, but I put a note in your notes, and I want to say it out loud. I told you last week there were three prison books. There are four. Uh, books that Paul wrote from prison, and I know that so well, but I misspoke. 
So make sure that you know, Paul was in prison when he wrote our book of Ephesians, but he also wrote four other, three other books, a total of four, Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon uh, and, uh, and Philippi, or, the, or Philippians. Let me get them right. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon are the, the prison epistles. So now we're going to dive in. Let me read the first three uh, verses just to get the, the setting. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's people in Ephesus, we took a look at where that city was last week, on the edge of Turkey, um, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he starts his long sentence. 278 uh, words from chapter verse 3 down to the end of verse uh, 14. Just bracket it off in your Bible and sit and just look at it for a minute. That is all one sentence. Um, and I mentioned to you before that in some senses, this is not, this is not a, um, a letter as much as it is a hymn. Or, or, or one writer talked about it. It was, it was the overture to an opera. I've only been to one opera in my life. Uh, it was in Vienna. I was all of 17 years of age, could not have cared less, uh, and my behavior reflected that. Um, I will not share details. That was before the Lord. Um, but uh, I do know enough about opera to know that there is an opening uh, salvo, if you will, uh, from a musical standpoint, and it's an overture, and it, and it captures and, 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 and kind of dissects for you what's going to be coming. That's exactly what he's doing in this hymn, a very high praise to Yahweh. Um, it is going to talk about our redemption, and, and, and it's going to talk about all the things. It's a summary of everything we have in Christ. Now, if I were to ask you to make an inventory of what you have in your home, uh, you would, I don't know, sit down, take a piece of paper, you'd start with things like furniture, and then you'd move to maybe appliances. That's okay. It's nice to be needed. And, uh, and then maybe you'd go to jewelry, maybe you got some cool jewelry, and, and then, I don't know, some heirlooms somewhere uh, that no one wants. But anyway, you got some heirlooms. <laughs> and, uh, you know, clothes, you're going to list them, so many of these, so many of those. You're, you're making a list of, of all the things that you have. What is so much more important is what we have in Christ. What we have in our house could be gone with a simple fire. What we have spent, you know, sometimes a lifetime gathering by way of working hard and, and, and being a good steward can go like that. That incredible car that just makes us feel so special is plastic. A little bit of metal, but mostly plastic. When we think about what we have in Christ, the problem is we don't think about what we have in Christ. Let me put it that way. We don't marinate on what we have because of our relationship with the Son of God. And that's what Paul wants to remedy. He's going to take this super sentence. Uh, some uh, theologians call it the cumulative sentence, meaning it's everything you need to know, all in this incredible, uh, you know, 11 or, or so verses. Now, it's interesting, uh, depending on the translation you have in your lap, if you have if you have um, a um, a um, ASV, they actually are true to the Greek and do it all in one sentence. 
If you have a King James Bible in your, in your lap, uh, they do it in three sentences. If you have an NIV, which is what I teach out of, they do it in eight, eight sentences. It is one sentence. In fact, look at the second page. I did this as kind of a chuckle. I have no intentions of working through this. But I wanted to show you what it, what it looks like if you diagram. How many of you diagram sentences in school? Okay, if you're older than whatever you did. If you're younger than that, you didn't, and it's to your shame that you did not. Did you do that? I did not do that. I stole okay. that. That's crazy. I did that when I was in seminary, and it about killed me off. But the, the point is just to show you how it is all connected. It's connected from a grammar standpoint. It's connected from a concept standpoint. It's connected in what God's trying to un, unfold or envelop or envelop for us and put us into. This long sentence can be divided really into three sections. The, the first three verses are, yeah, three, four, five, four, four verses. They talk about what God the Father does on our behalf. So verse three, four, five, and six are all about the work of God the Father. And then verses 7 through 11 starts talking about the work of the Son. Now, I, I hope that none of you have any issues or, or struggle with the Trinity. We, we don't get it. Let, let me put it this way. I don't get it. Every attempt to try to explain to me the Trinity of God falls short. Well, it's like an egg. It has an outer shell and has wine and has a yolk. What is that? I don't get that. What are the other ones they... they What's that water? Ice. Freezes, ice, uh, liquid, and, you know, vapor. Steam, Steam right. Okay. Every, every attempt to take uh, the, the Trinity, the, the three persons in one, and make it make sense in my very limited mind falls short. So I make no attempt to try to explain the Trinity. I will state that it is very clear in God's word that, that he presents himself to us in, in three ways, in, in three persons. The, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's fascinating to me in this very lofty hymn that, that sets the stage for the rest of the book of Ephesians, he outlines the work of God by showing us the, the role those three are having. So 3 through 6, the work of the Father. 7 through 11, the work of the Son. And 12, 13, and 14 are the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, who is this sentence addressing? Who's the subject? What, what are, who, who's getting what? Well, the, 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 pra- the section begins in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the hel- heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, the, 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 the subject is God, God, Yahweh. And the verb is He's, he's to be blessed. He's to be praised. Um, how is he to be blessed? How is he to be praised? What is he to be blessed for? What is he to be praised for? That's what the rest of the passage teaches. It's explaining why we should praise Yahweh. Now, I use the word Yahweh just as a, as a means to make you think a little more lofty about God in this passage. Because that's the point. He's taking all the things that he has done on our behalf... And outlining it by saying, God the Father did this, God the Son did that, God the Holy Spirit is doing this. In, in, a, in a means, in a, in a way, for a purpose of getting us to lift our heads up and go, I bless your name. I, I worship you. I, I give you praise. 
my absolute favorite part of being together with other believers is singing. Because it's a time when I can express what's in my heart. Now, I sing by myself very poorly. Uh, and, and yes, I've had some phenomenal times of worship when I, you know, I'm bouncing around through whatever. But when I am with a crowd and I have an opportunity to sing and release my spirit, doesn't matter what I sound like, doesn't matter if I'm carrying the tune, doesn't matter. There's a, a, a release, a praising, a, a blessing of God's name. That is a powerful moment. And that's what's happening here. It's throughout this, this descriptive list of things that, that God has provided for us, we get, to, we get to respond in praise. It is not an academic list. He gave me this, check. Gave me that, check. Gave me a car, check. Gave me a husband, check. Gave me kids, check. It's not like that. It's more like that which sustains us. It's more like thinking about water. What does water do to you? Well, it, it satisfies your thirst, yes. But on a molecular level, it does so much more. And, and, and the responsibility on our part is just to get it in us. Well, God's gifts to us are so much more rich and varied and significant than husbands and children and cars and homes and things. So let's take a, look, a closer look at verses 3 to 6, the work of the Father. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Or, yes, in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Notice first off the pronoun us. He didn't say who has blessed me. Now in our world, in Southern California particularly, in our culture, in our time frame when we live, we are very, I usually say John Wayne-ish. Us. Me. Mine. I got it. God and me. We're good. And we read the Bible as if it were a personal, and it is a personal letter, but we read it as if it's a personal letter to the exclusion of everyone else. God does this for me. I don't know about you guys. God and me. We're, you know, you know. And there is a sense in which that's true. But in our culture, we've lost the sense of community. He does it for us. It's not for an individual as much as it is for a group. Yes, God knows us individually. Yes, he meets with us individually. Yes, he knows all about our individual needs. But he looks at us and provides for us in the context of each other. That's why going to church on your laptop on Sunday morning doesn't work. It doesn't work. I need to be with you. You need to be with me. I need to be with that gentleman over there and those kids over there and that older person over there and that younger person over there and that married couple over there and that grandma over there. There is a sense in which community gets and holds the blessings of God. And when we draw away into our own little corner of the universe, it's me and God, we are limiting our understanding of the blessings that God has provided for us. The, 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 the underscoring for why we should all be dynamically involved in the body of Christ is the fact that the, the gifts were meant for us to share together, to enjoy together, to be a part of. Now, I'm very monkish, as you know. I Leave me alone. I want to go home. And, and last night, I, I had one of those slap across the face moments. The other Bible study that I teach, they have small groups. And one of the small groups invited me to dinner last night. 
I don't know any of them. It's Monday night. There wasn't any football on, but I had, you know. But I said yes because I'm the teacher and, and I should go. So I drove all the way, God, 15 minutes, all the way to Mission Viejo and found this lady's house and went in, did no soul. Hi, I'm Sherry, I'm Sherry. Before the night was over, I, I, I just, okay, Lord, I get it. Sweetest group of people, some uh, a little older, some a little younger, some of them very, very young uh, in their marriage, in their life. Um, it, essentially, one gal told her life story. She's adopted and, and all the things that went on, and she just recently found her birth mother and father and that whole experience and, and the relationship she has with her adopted parents and the, the sweetness of it all. And, 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 I, and I got in my car on the way home. I went, Lord, I get it. I'm sorry. There's an us. There's an us. These blessings, there, there is an us. There's a sense in which he says... He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, most, most mamas, and especially as you get older, when we're asked, what do we want for Christmas? What do we say? What, what did you say, Marshall, this year? I want all the kids around me. Yeah. And the grandkids. Yeah. We, we don't have our eye on a thing, a bauble. Every now and then we do. Every now and then, oh, it would be really nice if I had a new whatever, whatever that we struggle with all the time. But generally speaking, the older you get, the, the deeper and richer your life is with people, you start moving away from the things and move into the the people and the experiences and the together, which is why you should go with her in Paris. Um, you know, the the desired gifts we have are not are not going to show up on an Amazon list. You know, um, the the silly retort for the beauty pageants. You know, what do you want in life? Uh, world peace. Well, I, I do. I want world peace. I'm worried about the Christians in Nigeria right now. I'm praying for the, the group here or there. I, I am much more interested in those kinds of things. And so what he's saying is we're getting spiritual blessings. He's not, he's not promising you a new, a new car. He's not, he's not promising you a new house, you know, window treatments, uh, whatever. He's, he's saying these are spiritual blessings. These are far more important, far more valuable. The number one prayer need in my heart has to do with Brianna. Period. It has nothing to do with what I can put in my house or drive you know, as a car or an item or even an experience as much as I value things like travel. The, the number one gift, if I were to get from the Lord, has to do with her. And I'm certain that that would be true for, for most of us in the room. So when he says he's given us every spiritual blessing, it's not the triteness of the new whatever that we want or need. But but something far more valuable. And then he starts in verse number four. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So... So there's, there's at least, you know, a, 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 a three or four things in this first part that he talks about God the Father giving or providing for us. And the, and the first one is he chose us in him and he predestined us to be adopted. Now the word uh, predestined literally means to know beforehand. 
So, um, if if for some reason uh, you were aware that your kid was going to, you know, do something and you said it to him before he did it and then it came to pass, you could say, well, he was predestined. I, I knew about it. The, the, there are two major ways theologically we look at this concept. And if you've been saved for a few years, you know this is one of those things that Christians kind of tumble over. God knew us. Does that mean that we had nothing to do with it? Uh, God chose us. Does that mean I didn't have uh, a choice myself? Uh, if, he, if I was predestined, what is my part in that? How am I supposed to respond? As a believer now, sharing the gospel, why do I bother? If they're predestined, that's going to happen. If they were chosen, if they were not chosen. This is a, a theological quandary. And the, and the students in seminary love to argue this one. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to give you the two ways that generally it's viewed. And then I'm going to make an important, I think, comment. The one way is that he chose or decided beforehand. That God in his sovereignty, and that is a key word. Because he is God, he made the choice. And he said, these are going to become my children and these are not. Now that is a very difficult concept for the John Waynes of us. Our culture struggles with that. Who are you? I make my own decisions. One of the ways that helps me understand the word sovereign is thinking about me and ants. So I'm out in my backyard and I want to sit down and I want to have a picnic and I, I, I break out my favorite something or another and then little creatures all show up. Right? I am sovereign over the ants. Right? Sucker. Stomp. You guys get to live because you're running away. No problem. You? I am sovereign. You say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Maybe not from the ant's perspective. <laughs> but what about from my perspective? I'm sovereign. It's my backyard. It's my lunch. I don't want you in it. It's my body. Hurts when you sting me. I'm going to take care of you. You guys, you get to live. You guys don't. If you get God high enough, in your thinking, sovereign enough, ruling enough, and get him out of the, the buddy and the pal and our, and our you know, equal, and get him into a place of sovereignty. That interpretation of, of predestination begins to make some sense. God is God. He can do whatever he wants to. Now, from the ant's perspective, that's you and me. Whoa, wait a minute. I got ideas. I got worth. I got value. I got, you know, things to do and a life to live. And whoa, what do you mean? And I'm in charge of me. Maybe not. The second way to look at it is that God, in his sovereignty, knew who was going to choose him, and therefore they were predestined. The first definition is the Calvinistic approach, and Reformed churches and others take that perspective. In our area, there are a number of them. And the latter is the Arminian perspective. And if you were a theologian, those guys make sense to you. 
And the Armenian perspective is taught in many of our churches in our area, probably more prevalent than the, than the former. It ru- doesn't really matter for our purposes today how you interpret the choosing and the predestining. It is clear that it is God at work. He is behind the curtain of the gospel. His salvation, one way or another, is his doing. I don't get to take credit for it at all. What do you bring to the table for your salvation? Absolutely nothing. But I was a good girl when I was... But I try hard. But the old business about putting the scales up and throwing our good deeds on one side and, and you know the scales of God on the other and yeah, we do it on any given day. That's not how the gospel works at all. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of works, lest anyone would boast. If we could earn it, if we had something we brought to the table, hey God, I know you died on my behalf and gave the supreme sacrifice and your blood met the demand for the payment of my sin, but I thought I'd bring... doesn't work that way. All to Jesus. That's how our salvation is, is recorded. God is at work, regardless of which way you understand that the work of God the Father is busy about choosing people who would become something. The Bible says holy and blameless. So with a show of hands, how many of you are feeling particularly holy and blameless today? (laughs) That was a tough vote. No, me neither. In fact, I I don't feel holy and blameless. I, I am frequently condemned in my own heart of an attitude or an idea, a perspective that that falls far short of what I know God's standard is for my life. And I'm sure it's true for you too. So when he says that he's done this choosing and he's done this predestining for a purpose that we become holy and blameless, A, how is that available? I just said, through grace and the work done on the cross. And when when is it stamped holy and blameless? When, when do I get that across my chest on a little placard? Not till we see him. Not till we see him. So in the meantime, what should I be marveling about? My pitiful little efforts to be holy and blameless? Or the fact that God has given me a passport and it is stamped? holy and blameless. I'm not there yet, but it's stamped. One day I'm going to flop that baby out and it's going to be true because I'm going to be in front of him. So one of the incredible things that he gives us by way of these spiritual blessings is the choosing and the predestining. And the second one, it says, he's, he, he says in that passage about being adopted. Predestined us to be adopted. Uh, I don't want to put anybody on the spot in here today because sometimes uh, people don't share their adoptions. But the, the gal that was there last night, it was such a captivating story to see how excited she is as a woman to be adopted. I mean, she has no rancor about her birth mom or dad. One of them's kind of neat and the other one's not. Circumstances, whatever. She has a sister that she can't find. 
circumstances of her life might not be whatever, but she is glowing in her adoption. Now, that's what he's talking about here for you and me. We weren't born into God's family. Are you kidding? The Bible says we were children of wrath. When we were born, we were born just like our parents. Our parents were, were, were uh, sinners. I was doing some stuff on uh, Ancestry.com last night. And I'm back five generations on, on, my, on my dad's side. And reading a few stories about and showing some pictures of people and whatever. It was, I was just fascinated by my, my, a little bit of the roots, you know. We, we got some Confederate rebels in there. Lovely. Uh, we, got, we got some uh, on the Union side. We got the ones that came over on the boat. Uh, it was, uh, they renewed my, uh, or updated my, my biological whatever, and I'm 36% Irish, thank you very much. <laughs> it went up 10%. Uh, anyway, in, in the fascination of that, I was thinking about, to what extent did, you know, Volkov, five generations back, or whatever his name was, what extent did he impact me? You know, five generations back on my dad's side. I don't know, I got the last name, Voral, Voral, uh, what else? Well, look at his face, I don't see any physical resemblances or whatever. I don't know what he liked, he was a farmer, for heaven's sakes, I, I can't grow anything. Here's, here's what I did get from Volkloff, or whatever his name was. I, I got sinner. I got because the Bible clearly says that when Adam and Eve sinned, then, then sin passed through all generations. You were born a dirty, rotten sinner. You say, well, not that precious little thing of mine. They lie. Right? From the beginning. They're warm, they're fed, they're changed. Everything is hunky-dory, and what do they do? Scream their lungs out because they want some attention. That's lying. You are a liar. Now, nobody goes in and grabs their little sweet, precious uh, infant and calls them a liar, but there is a sense in which we were born sinners. The adoption is so important. I don't deserve to be part of God's family, but I got adopted. The Roman law is really rich in some imagery here that Paul would have been referring to and all these people knew. If a son was adopted, first thing that happened is any of the the residual responsibilities that he had to his, his birth family debts, um, he was in uh, bondage, slavery, any of those things, all of those were absolved. So that was step one. You don't owe anything. You don't have any other uh, encumbrances. You have been set free to now be my son. And then step, step two was anything and everything that is mine is now yours. Now think about that. Let's say you came from a, a very poor family on the south side of the tracks and somehow or another, the debt, the family debt, came down to you. And you owe all these people in the community a ton of money. And they all look down on you because you live on the other side of the tracks. And suddenly you're adopted. And the first thing that happens is the slate is cleared clean. And the second thing that happens is you are given a piece of paper that shows your name on every account. You are a co-owner of everything that the adopted parent has. That is what we got in Christ. We are adopted. Um, when, we, when we look at the concept of adoption, it's the idea of becoming a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Look at it in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.17. It, it's this concept of, of newness, of not the same, of, 
of we're moving on. I am no longer this person. I am adopted into God's family, and it makes a difference. 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. When I got adopted in Christ, I no longer am the same person I was before. Now, every now and then, I revert back to my old tricks. Every now and then, my old nature rears its ugly head, and I act like I did before I became one of his kids. But I don't have to. I have the power within me with the Holy Spirit to move beyond that. But adoption is a powerful picture of what God did for us. Sherry, I'd like you to be in my family. You come here. All of your debts wiped clean. Everything I have is now yours. Everything there is in Christ, you are now privileged to. Everything that that could have been Christ is yours. And then the concept of being accepted in the beloved or freely given to us in the one that he loves. That's the phrase. What kind of love? Wow. To to be accepted in the beloved. Most women struggle so mightily with the concept of acceptance. We don't like the person in the mirror. And we're afraid that those nearest to us don't like that person either. And so we struggle with with one aspect or another of our lives. Sometimes it's physical uh, things we struggle with. Sometimes it's emotional things. Sometimes it's our background. Sometimes whatever. Things that we did. Feeling accepted. We rarely wake up in the morning and go, I like me. (laughs) And more importantly, I think he likes me and she likes me and they like me. We rarely do that, if ever. But I'm accepted in the beloved. God, one of those spiritual blessings that he gave was, Sherry, you are totally accepted. I am crazy about you crazy about you. 1 John 1, 9. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons or daughters of God. Behold. Stare at it. Gaze at it. Go memorize that verse. 1 John 3, 1. What manner of love? An unbelievable manner of love. Take the look that your husband had in his eyes when you stood together in the front of the church or wherever you got married and he said his I do's and multiply that by 50 billion. That's the look in God's eyes when he looks at you. Not because you earned it, but because Christ did. In Christ, that's what he sees. I am adopted. I am accepted in the beloved. So that's the work of the Father. That's pretty cool, huh? Then we go to the work of the Son, verse 7. Verse 7, he gives on to say, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in according with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. So the work of the Son, what did we get? What spiritual blessings did we get in Christ? Well, the first one is we got redeemed. 
The word the word redeemed means to liberate, but to liber, to, to, to liberate when when there's been in the receipt of a ransom. So if you were a slave in the in the 1800s and they grabbed you on the eastern coast of Africa, threw you in a horrible boat, and brought you over here to be a slave for somebody in 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 our country, um, and and somewhere along the line for some reason someone decided to redeem you, they had to pay whatever the price was for for you as as a slave, and and they had to bring literally that money to the to the auction house. And upon receipt of that ransom, that that payback, then you were set free. You and I have redemption because Christ paid the penalty. When he declared it is finished, the receipt was was dropped. I became adopted and accepted and, and recipient of all these spiritual blessings the moment Christ went to the cross and died on my behalf. That is worth glorying in. That is worth thinking about, ruminating on, and using as a way to, 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 to give praise and blessing back to God. I've been redeemed. I've been set free. I no longer am under the chains of having to pay for my own sin. Um, I remember uh, Barb telling me about a, a neighbor, or not a neighbor, a friend of hers. The, the mother was passing away, and Barb as a nurse was often there to help. And she happened to be there when the person actually passed away. And they howled in, in, in creepy, scary, oh my gosh, what's coming next, as they left this world and went into the next. I am not going to howl. I have no fear. I have trepidation about the process, sure. But I am aware that I have been redeemed. That which I earned in my sin, it's been paid for. Slap it down. Done. The receipt of the ransom and the price that that paid it was his shed blood. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews 9, 22. 9.22, and he says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why did Christ have to go to the cross and die? Because without the shedding of blood, there would have been no forgiveness. So redemption. What else did the work, what, what else did uh, Christ do on our behalf? He talks about forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins. Um... What, what, what greater gift could there be than for someone to say, I forgive you? And, you know, when you have a, 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 a spat with your spouse or a good friend, and there's a strain and it's not good, and finally you give up and, and, and get together and, and deal with it, and, and one or both of you are going to look at each other and say, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done it. What does the other person say? I forgive you. How liberating is that? How freeing is it to hear from that person? Maybe something that's been simmering for years and they look you in the eye and say, I, I forgive you of that. You know, not too long ago, there was a guy um, that was shot in Texas and there was a trial. And if you remember, the brother of the person that was shot stood up in court, turned around and looked at that man and said, I forgive you. How powerful. That went viral. Because our world, viral, yeah, our world doesn't know about what that that concept is of, is like. To be forgiven, 
And then he says, we have grace from God, but not just, you know, mediocre grace. We have grace lavished on us. Lavished. What, what, what does lavished mean? It means lots of. It's like how I eat pumpkin pie. <laughs> if you've ever seen a picture about Thanksgiving, I usually post a piece of pumpkin pie. And there's a piece of pumpkin pie completely igloo'd by, by whipped cream. You know, if, if the pumpkin pie is this high, then the, the Cool Whips should be at least that high on all dimensions. That's lavished. Or, or if I get a really bad sunburn, I usually burn the first day and then go brown the next day. But the day that I burn, if I'm dumb and I'm out there too much, I want, I want aloe vera. I want, I'm going to lavish it on. I don't just dab it. A little here, a little there, a little here, a little there. I'm going to lay it on. That's how grace is given to us. Lavished. God doesn't say, okay. Marsha, you've been kind of a skunk, but I'm going to give you a little bit of grace. Just enough to get through the day. A boatload. He lavished on us. And then it talks about, he lets us in on the mystery of his will. What is that all about? The mystery of his will. A gift in Christ. A spiritual gift. Well, God's plan for redemption was sort of hidden down through the ages. If you start with Job, which is the uh, oldest book in our Bible, and you read the entire book of Job, and you, you're looking for the gospel, where does it say Jesus is going to come and die uh, for his sins and redeem him? Well, it does. Now, there are certainly aspects to the story and, and precursors to the story and leads to the story, but it's not all in the book of Job. Then you say, well, it must be in Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis that starts the story of, of his, his chosen people. And you read the entire book of Genesis, and you're, and you're not going to hear about the cross. What you're going to hear is a, a kind of veiled understanding of God sending a, a, a Messiah. And as you work your way through the Old Testament, as you work your way through the stories in the, in the person of a, in, in described in, a, in the character of a person like David, you see that you see what what the Messiah was going to be like. You see the prophets now starting to preach as the as as the years go by, clearer and clearer and more specific. Where where Micah's going to say where he was born, and another prophet's going to say that he was going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah does that, and another prophet's going to give another specific, and the details starting to come out. It's still it's still pretty much it's still. A little veiled. It's still a okay. Well, we'll 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 live according to the law you gave us, the moral law and the and the and the ceremonial law and the personal applications. We'll we'll offer the sacrifices in anticipation. We'll have that high priest go in one a, once a year and offer blood on the on the on the mercy seat in anticipation. And yeah, our sins get covered or or forgiven on a kind of a roll it forward for one year basis. And then the high priest has got to come back again. And then suddenly Jesus appears on the scene. And he he begins to to live out everything that the prophets uh foretold. And his life and and his teaching and then his death and his resurrection complete the story. So until Christ came, it was kind of veiled. And now Paul says, wait a minute, we got it. We know it. 
We don't have to kind of muddle our way through the book of Job or muddle our way through the early uh, books in the Old Testament. We don't, we don't have to look for the application of, the, of the, the, the antecedent of some of these prophecies. We've got him right here. We got details about him. We got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John that told us everything about those three and a half years. We, we get it. He's no longer hidden. There's another sense in which we get the mystery, though. The Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who perish. So, so the idea that Jesus would offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross is not only very clearly understood by most people in this room, it's precious to us. When we talk about him shedding his blood, there is a, there is a, a unique preciousness to that truth. When you go out on the street and you stop someone uh, in their car, and you ask them, hey, does the cross of Christ mean anything to you? And the answer is probably going to be, not much. And if you get into, well, he shed his blood. Oh, that's kind of gory. What are we, what are we in the blood? I mean, come on, get, get, get into the 21st century. Give me a break. It's kind of veiled to those that are unsaved. But when you become a believer, the veils come off, and, and now that which was... Fuzzy is no longer fuzzy. One of the gifts we get is clarity. Many sects about these things are in heaven and on, and, and on earth. They're going to come together. Um, when, it, when, he, when he uses this phrase, let me get it back in the context. He says, um, to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Things don't look like they make sense. I look at things politically, or I look at things from a historical standpoint, or I look at culture, and I look at the world the kids are growing up in today. I look at certain aspects of, of the life you and I have to live, the impact of disease, and so on and so on and so on. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, it's, it's confusing and frustrating and, and, and worrisome. I remember a conversation I had with Brianna not too terribly long ago about bringing children into this world. And she's a typical millennial and she's looking around and, ugh, you know, doesn't look so good. This business about things in heaven and on earth, it, the term used uh, in that is kind of like a accountant that would add up a column of figures and once they got the total, they'd, they'd bring it up to the top. So as you start with this accounting, you can see the total. That's what he's doing. You and I get to see the end from the beginning. We know, we know how the story ends. You know, go to the last chapter in your Bible and read the, the last few verses of Revelation. You know how this story ends. We're not muddling along wondering what's going to happen. I get it. I know. We're moving towards an end, and I know what that end looks like. And it is glorious. And my ability to participate in that is unbelievable. So that's what he's saying. This plan, I'm working everything out. And it's according to my will. According to my will. All right, that's what we get in, in Christ. Now, in verses 12, 13, and 14, the Bible says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
We definitely exist for the praise of his glory. There's no doubt about that. And the ultimate plan that God has for us is both now and for all eternity. But, but, but we're not there yet. I'm not there. How do I know? Can I get a little pre-something? Can I get a little taste? Can I get a little, what's it going to be like? Can I know a little more about it? And, and that's this word guarantee. A guarantee is like a down payment. I'm going to pay for this house. We're going to buy this house. Lovely. I've got a good job. Good. Uh, we have a certain amount of savings. Good. Now give me, give me some down payment. Give me some, some stuff up front. And if it's a large enough down payment, then we'll enter into the transaction. The down payment you and I have of what all eternity is going to be like is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What a down payment. He says, we've been sealed. We've been marked. This one's mine. I don't know what the mark looks like. You know, there was something on television not too long ago. Kids got a bunch of permanent markers and you know, wrote all over themselves. I, I don't think it's like that. But there is a permanent mark somewhere on me that God and his folks know. They can spot it. Uh, Sherry, Sherry. Oh, there, there, there she is. Right over there. She's marked. And she has a down payment in her heart. She's got a guarantee. What is that? The residing of the Holy Spirit. See, the difference between me and Abraham is Abraham had conversations with God and then God went away. Isaiah had conversations with God and then God went away. The Holy Spirit came upon Daniel and his friends during certain times of his life and then left. Not so me. Because the day that I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior is the moment that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, came to live within me. And now I have inside of me part of my conscience and part of my awareness and that which connects me to God is the, is the down payment, the taste, the role of the Holy Spirit. So think about those incredible moments when you're in a, in a worship mode and you feel so connected to God. That is just a taste, a down payment. A, ooh, what in heaven's name, literally, is it going to be like? And so what? So now we, we understand all these spiritual blessings that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit Spirit provided for us. What do we do with those? And my suggestion is that you sit. <coughs> that you just plunk yourself down right in the middle of those truths. And, and you hunker down. You marinate on that. You think about it. You, you act like it's true. You, you position yourself. I don't have to be all, 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 all uh, defensive. I don't have to curl up as if life was beating me up. I, I, I have a position. What is my position? I'm going to sit in the truths, the great and glorious truths of the spiritual blessings that have been provided for me. And when I position myself there, do you think I have more confidence or less? Much more. Much more. And I'm in a position then because the gifts are so overwhelming to respond with an overwhelming amount of praise. There needs to be a conscious effort on our part to refocus on those truths. When we do, it makes a substantive difference in our everyday living. 
example of that was a story I read this week, and I'll close with this story. It had to do with a, a Navajo Indian. And I, I think it's a true story, but I don't I can't verify it. But but he but he had a, a little plot of, you know, very dusty farmland and, and suddenly they found oil on his land. And so overnight he's a you know, millionaire. He didn't want any of the money. He liked his life. He liked what he was doing. But, you know, he's got all this money. So he, so he went to the bank, and, and, he, and he deposited in the little local bank, a little town on the edge of his farm. And he said to the banker, he got to know him really well, he said, I, I want you to leave this kind of liquid. I, I want there to be stacks of dollars, and I love silver dollars. Put a lot of silver dollars in there and keep them in your vault. And the banker said, fine, that's fine. We will keep a bunch of cash, no big deal. So every now and then, the, the, the Navajo guy, he's working hard on his farm, working hard with his animals. He'd come in, and he'd, and he'd be muttering to the banker. Grass all gone. Sheep all sick. Water holes all dry. And the banker would say, oh, oh okay. Come on in here. And the Navajo guy would go into the, the bank vault, and he'd sit there, and he'd count his money. And he'd play with the silver dollars. He'd be in there a while. And after a while, he'd stack them all back up, put them all back in the boxes, put them all back in the sacks, and he'd walk out. And as he walked out, this is what he would say to the banker. Grass, all green. Sheep, all well. Water holes, full. What made the difference? He didn't take any of the money with him. He knew it was there. He knew what his resources were. He knew what he could sit in, marinate on, reflect on, let seep into his soul. He's got all that stuff there. So, guys, grass is not gone. Sheep are not all sick. Water holes are not all dry. I want you to go home saying to yourself, grass, all green. <laughs> Sheep, all well. Water holes full because of the blessings, the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you at the beginning to teach us, and I pray there was something that was said this morning out of your word that would have resonated in each and every heart. I pray that you'll take that and let them, let them chew on it like a dog on a bone, sustaining their life, giving them direction, giving them hope and purpose. Father, meet the needs, I pray in those spiritual blessings in Christ. In his name we pray.